Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you're in the room live, watching online or later on demand, or even listening to our podcast, it's a great day to be at Dayspring. If you are visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that this is the kind of church where you get to be you. There's no need to pretend that everything's perfect in your life. It's certainly not in ours. We are regular people on a journey, allowing Jesus to make something beautiful out of our broken and often messy lives. One little step at a time, learning to live like Jesus. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the team here at Dayspring. That team is made up of people committed to helping you grow. We love to challenge, encourage, and equip people to become more like Jesus. So if you're on that journey too, we're looking forward to lending a hand. Even if you aren't sure that you want to be on that journey with us, maybe you are skeptical about the claims of Jesus or skeptical of his followers. Well, this is still a great place, a safe place to explore and ask questions as you look for answers. We're asking questions and looking for answers too, so I think we can be pretty good company on your journey. So welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church by checking out our Facebook page or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. We had arrived in Lima to facilitate our first ever international worship conference. A whole team of Americans had stepped out in faith and joined me on this new adventure. Prior to this moment, I had traveled to Peru on a fact-finding mission with Joaquin, who was born in Peru and born to a well-established family of pastors. He had the contacts and the vision to help his fellow Peruvians worship with greater excellence. Uh, there, most church musicians have had zero training. No voice lessons, no guitar lessons, no leadership training, no understanding of the deeper values of what it means to worship. So with the blessing and support of every pastor we had met during our pre-trip visit from the northern Amazonian headwaters of Iquitos to the desert of Ica, we had come in humility to offer support. And it was opening night. The first general session was to begin at 7 p.m. Here in America, seven means seven. Maybe 7.05 if there is some problem. I mean, our church service begins at the same time. Every week, we go live with an 11-minute countdown at 10.50 a.m. on schedule every week. Technology has synchronized our clocks, so they're all the same. And we push start at 10.50, which means we start our service with the bumper video of me welcoming you at 11.01 every week. We had been warned about Peruvian time. We knew they were a little loosey-goosey about time, more so than we Americans. We were prepared for a delayed start. We thought, ah, 7.15, maybe 7.30, and then we'll get going. We got the go-ahead at 8.45 p.m., an hour and 45 minutes later than scheduled. By this point, 
the adrenaline had worn off and I was ready for bed. <laughs> it, it seems to me that when it comes to time, you fall in one of three camps. Though life uh, never really works out this way anymore, you might be like me, I would rather be 30 minutes early than on time. How many of you fall into the I show up early camp? Go ahead, show, show of hands, good. Okay, and then there are those who shoot for the right on time. If it starts at seven, I'll show up at seven. How many of you are on timers? Okay, and then last, by default, we've already outed you already, so you might as well raise your hands. How many of you are the time, what time kind of people? Yeah, you're still not really ready to uh, admit that, are you? I don't know if you've noticed it so far in this series, but the Apostle Peter has had a great deal to say about time. In the first chapter, he refers to time four times. Uh, in verse 5, he says, And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive the salvation. Ready for the... Uh, the teleprompter went just a little bit faster than I was ready for that, but which is ready to be revealed on the last day. There we go. The, then verse 11 begins with the phrase, they wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ was talking about. And in verse 17, we are told to live in reverent fear of God the Father during our time here as temporary residents. And then verse 20 says about Jesus, God chose him as your ransom long before the world began, but now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. Peter, along with the, the Apostle Paul and the rest of the New Testament writers, consistently encouraged believers to make the most of their time. As Warren Wearsby put it in his commentary, if a person really believes in eternity then he will make the best use of his time. If we are convinced that Jesus is coming, then we will want to live prepared lives. Whether Jesus comes first or death comes first, we want to make the rest of the time count for eternity. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, we are working our way through the two letters of the Apostle Peter that we find in the New Testament. We've called this series On This Rock in honor of Peter's role in the leadership of the first century church and as a reminder that we too have chosen to build our lives on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. We're not so different from him if you think about it. Peter was just a normal guy before he met Jesus, kind of like us. He was, largely un, he was an, a largely uneducated fisherman, a bull in a china shop, who very visibly modeled uh, the starts and stops of a journey to become like Jesus. And even after three years of learning face-to-face -face with Jesus, the gospels still portray him as a guy who still has a long way to go. In Peter, more than any other disciple, we see his successes and failures played out in the pages of the gospels in the book of Acts. And yet, Jesus still entrusted the church into his care. His life was a series of radical changes, changes that altered his attitudes, his inner motives, habits, and pursuits. Along with other historical documents, we know that, that God's refining work in Peter through his mountaintop highs and through his low valleys had turned him into a pillar of the early church. Now at this time, Peter was writing to people who were experiencing pain, the pain and suffering of persecution. 
People who didn't know how much time they might have left before crossing the finish line into eternity. Peter wanted them to use their time wisely so they could, to use an image given to us by the Apostle Paul, cross the finish line as they won the race set out before them. While at least here in the U.S., we might not yet be experiencing the same persecution of, as our first century brothers and sisters, none of us knows the number of days we have left, which makes Peter's words true for us as well. And in the, the first 11 verses of chapter 4, we find four attitudes that we can cultivate to make the best use of our time. So let's pick it up in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, which begins like this. So then. Now your translation might say, therefore. Sometimes it's easy to forget that chapters and verses and section headings weren't a part of the original letters of the New Testament writers, which can also make it seem like a new chapter or a, a new heading indicates a new thought by the writer. However, that's not usually true. This is one letter and these two words, so then or therefore, tie this into the last half of chapter 3, which Michelle taught on last week, which ties into the section before it. If I were to summarize what Peter has written so far, it would be that uh, we have a living hope in Jesus Christ who through his death and resurrection made our salvation possible by paying the penalty for our sin and conquering death. And when we receive his gift of salvation, we too become living stones in the new temple of God, which is revealed to the world through the capital C church, of which Jesus is the cornerstone. But not only that, our entire identity changes. We are adopted into his family as sons and daughters of God the Father, and we are given citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. A citizenship which trumps our citizenship in any earthly kingdom, or, or even as, on this planet as citizens of humanity. Instead, we become ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, light shining in the darkness, revealing the glory of God to those who are lost. And as ambassadors, we are called to live completely differently from the world that is currently our home. We are, we are to be set apart, holy, postured toward the presence of God with our backs to the trappings of this world which will make us targets. But in Jesus, we have the perfect model of what it looks like to live completely differently than the world around us and to suffer for his goodness even unto death. So, so then, therefore, in light of everything that I have just written about Christ, let me leave you with some very practical conclusions. So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had. In light of our relationship with Christ and his saving work in our lives, Peter urges us to arm ourselves with the same attitude Jesus had. The Greek word hoplidzo translated here as arm yourselves, is a military term that refers to a soldier taking up weapons in preparation for battle. 
which is also an analogy that we see in, in the writings of the Apostle Paul, reminding us that we are soldiers in a spiritual battle. Hoplizo is a verb, making it, uh, uh, making it an active word. It is related to hoplan, a noun, which is used to describe a heavily armed foot soldier who carried a pike, which is a type of spear, and a large shield, meaning that we need the heaviest of armor to withstand the attacks of Satan. Now, clearly, we have not been left on this planet to vacation or idle our days away. We are in a war on foreign soil, living on a battlefront, engaged in a fierce battle for our souls, a battle in which our enemy will do anything to hinder the work of Christ in our lives and through our lives. So to make the best use of our time, we arm ourselves by cultivating a militant attitude toward sin. And as we, we continue in these next few verses, Peter gives us four reminders that will help us to arm ourselves for the battle. From the top then. So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. Now our first reminder is that we no longer serve sin as our master. We have been freed from its tyranny. Christ suffered on our behalf to secure our freedom. Suffering plus Christ can help us have victory over sin. The more we posture our lives toward the presence of God, the more we overcome our old life so that you won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires but you will be anxious to do the will of God. Now, our second reminder is that freedom from sin means that we don't have to spend our days overwhelmed by our desires. We have been freed to do good. As the prophet Ezekiel might put it, our heart of stone, the one that binds us in bondage to sin, has been replaced with a heart of flesh that beats for the beauty that we find in following Christ. We've opened the door to the will of God in our lives. Don't miss the contrast between the desires of man and the will of God. Instead of chasing after time-wasting, worthless idols that will pass away, we run for a crown that will last forever. This is how we invest whatever time we may have left on this planet. As Wearsby writes, the will of God is not a burden that the Father places on us. Rather, it is the divine enjoyment and enablement that makes all burdens light. Even when we don't understand what he is doing, we rest in the peace that he is good. That his love is perfect and is perfectly working out his best for our lives. We do not live on explanations, but on promises. Now we find our fourth reminder in verse 3. In opening the door to the will of God in our lives, we have closed the door on our godless living. Peter writes, you have had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy, their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties and their terrible worship of idols. These are just some of the things that we've closed the door on. It isn't meant to be an exhaustive list, so don't go thinking, whew, he didn't mention my secret sin. 
And let's be honest here, we tend to think about our sins, uh, uh, our own sins through the lens of rose-colored glasses. I mean, I'm not near as bad as those people. Uh, we're, We're good at finding people we think of as worse than ourselves so that we can feel better about ourselves. So it would be easy to read this list, which is arguably a list of extreme sinfulness, and compare it to your simple, unsanctified imagination or your every now and then gossip, or disbelief, or apathy toward the things of God, or whatever. Whatever your sin of choice is. And we all have one or two or 20 that are our regular go-tos. Whatever your sin of choice is, by virtue of the fact that you are here, or watching online, or listening to our podcast later, it's probably not one of those extremes. But don't let yourself off the hook. The terrible worship of idols that Peter is referring to uh, here has gone out of vogue. Now our idols are much more refined, especially for those of us who follow Christ. But we've closed the door to godless living. Although we're pretty good about getting our foot stuck in the door. So attitude number one, arm yourself with a militant attitude towards sin. No means no. And then number two, arm yourself with a patient attitude toward the lost. Verse four, of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. So they slander you. I'd guess that some of you uh, that have had a more radical life change when you came to Christ have experienced this. Oh, she doesn't go to bars anymore. She's too good for that. Don't even offer him that. He's a Christian. He doesn't do that. I've spent most of my life as a Christ follower, so it wasn't my former friends, as it says here. It was just the jerks in my high school. (laughs) Yeah, Voight's a goody two-shoes. Don't let him see. His dad's a cop. He'll probably rat us out. So even though they slander you, remember that they will have to face God, who stands ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead, That is why the good news was preached to those who are now dead. So although they were destined to die like all people, they now live forever with God in the Spirit. Now there are those who have interpreted this verse to mean, uh, this verse 6 to mean that there is a chance after physical death for salvation. They believe that the phrase, that is why the good news is preached to those who are now dead, means that Peter was talking about Jesus preaching to dead spirits. But that's not what he means. Peter is indicating the reason Jesus came. Jesus came and preached the gospel to living people. And by the time Peter wrote this letter, many of those living people who had believed Jesus had since died their physical death, their natural physical death. They had, the, their battle was over and they stepped into their victory. He's talking about these first believers From a biblical standpoint, there are only two conditions in which a person dies. In faith or in sin. And then it is too late to make a change. The overall message of this trio of verses is that your unsaved friends and family do not understand the radical change that occurred in your life when you surrendered to Christ. What we see as destructive behavior is normal behavior to them. We're the weird, the weird ones. As I've told you before, I'm the black sheep in my family. 
The pastor is the black sheep. The ones who have been in county jail multiple times for drug and alcohol abuse are just sad cases. But I'm the black sheep. That's how the world sees us. Even still, we are talking about people who are going to spend an eternity apart from God in hell. And because Jesus had a heart for the lost, we cannot ever write them off. We need to patiently love them where they are without participating in their sin. We are light in their darkness. We are bearers of truth that brings life. Even if we are unjustly attacked for our beliefs, we still love like Jesus always. Now, everything that we've read so far, both the warnings and the rewards, assume that there is something in your character that marks you as a Christ follower. Remember that this section of Peter's letter, which began about halfway through chapter 2 and continues to verse 11 here in chapter 4, everything in this section is addressing how we, as citizens and ambassadors of another kingdom, are supposed to live as strangers in a hostile world. That hostile world should be able to tell that you are different. If it can't, then you have a problem. We should expect to be misunderstood. I was listening to a non-Christian podcast this week in which the podcasters were discussing the merits of circumcision, which meant that they brought the Bible into their conversation. To hear them talk about what the Bible said was both laughable and incredibly sad. Laughable because they really didn't have any idea what they were talking about. And sad because they really didn't have any idea what they were talking about. They completely misunderstood the scriptures. We will be misunderstood. Expect it. Get comfortable with it. It's only going to get worse. And consider this. If you aren't misunderstood by those who are far from Christ, then are you really living as an ambassador of his kingdom? Okay, now let's just close out this section of Peter's letter. Verse 7. The end of the world is coming soon. Now, literally, Peter is saying that the goal of all things to come is near. Uh, that this great story that God has been writing since the beginning of creation is about to accomplish its goal. Its purpose is about to be revealed. The goal is coming soon, which in Bible speak means suddenly or unexpectedly. Peter isn't referring to linear time. If I tell you that lunchtime is near, I'm referring to a moment in linear time. As in, when this sermon is over, you can get lunch. So the epic conclusion to this marvelous story will come suddenly, unexpectedly. Therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. The third attitude that arms us for battle is an expectant attitude toward Christ. From the moment Jesus ascended into heaven, the church has waited for Jesus to return. The first century church expected him to return in their lifetime. The second century church expected him to return in their lifetime. And so on and so forth. I have read more Jesus is coming soon books than I can count. So I know that even in the 21st century, we are waiting. We expect him to come in our lifetime. When is far less important 
than the truth that we shall one day see Jesus face to face. One way or another, we will stand before him. And none of us knows when that will be. Notice that Peter doesn't get bogged down in the when. Instead, he focuses on the so what. It, it is true that Jesus could return unexpectedly at any moment. So what should we do about that in the meantime? How should we wait? We should be earnest or sober-minded. Depending on your translation, the, the New American Standard Bible says to be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Keep your mind steady. Don't buy into all of the wild prophecies and speculations that will inflame your imagination and take your eyes off the goal. Be purposeful with your life, focused, facing life realistically, free of delusions, not impulsive. This command mirrors what the Apostle Paul has to say. Ten times in his pastoral epistles, he admonishes people to be sober-minded. It's a requirement for pastors, elders, and church members. Which, if you are a Christ follower, you are a church member. The world jumps on a new bandwagon every time it turns around. We aren't like the world. We've put our faith in the solid rock that is unchanging and sure. So we continue to posture our lives toward his, the presence of God as we love in his name. Even when it seems as if the world is spinning out of control. Sober-minded. At peace. Faithfully urgently living out our calling as salt and light to a dying generation. How we live today will determine how we are rewarded and judged on that day. And though I fully believe that as Christ followers, our sins are remembered no more, we will still face our judgment. That's how the Bible describes it. And at that time, our deeds as ambassadors of his kingdom will pass through the fire. Some will burn away and some will make it through for our reward. I believe with all of my heart that we will want those deeds to make it through the fire. So make the best use of your time. Stop wasting time. Let your sober-minded judgment inform the way you pray on your journey to become like Christ. And then verse 8. Most important of all, continue to show deep Love for each other. For love covers a multitude of sins. Cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so far we've had three overall attitudes that arm us for battle. A militant attitude toward sin, a patient attitude toward the lost, an expectant attitude toward the return of Christ, and the fourth overall attitude that arms us for battle is a fervent attitude toward the saints. The New Living Translation's most important of all at the beginning of verse 8 makes this verse seem more passive than Peter intended. We are to stay fervent in love for one another. Picture Usain Bolt straining to cross the finish line. 
That's the kind of love Peter is commanding us to live out. It speaks of eagerness and intensity, eagerly and passionately love others. This others-focused kind of love is what sets us apart from the rest of the world. The world is watching the way we love each other. Jesus said that the world will know us by our love for each other. The way we love is what should make us different. The world needs to see emotionally and spiritually healthy Christ followers loving each other sacrificially. There is no one else who can model healthy love for them, which they won't get. Not really. It will be attractive to them for sure, but Jesus' love is so far out of the context, out of the realm of normal for them, that there isn't enough context for them to understand it without Jesus. They're missing the one person who powers our love. But even still, they'll be drawn to it like a moth to a flame. The bottom line, God uses our others-focused kind of love for each other to awaken lost people to him. Love is the badge for believers as we wait. And in light of Jesus' imminent return, we are commanded to be hospitable toward one another. Here in the New Living Translation, it says, cheerfully share your home. But most, most other translations say to be hospitable, to offer hospitality. In our context, we, we think of hospitality as having people over to your home for dinner. But in the first century, uh, hospitality served a much greater need and carried greater risk and heavier burden with it. For one thing, Christians were fleeing persecution and often had to leave home with only limited means to take care of themselves. So they relied on brothers and sisters in Christ to share homes and food as they passed through towns, which could be risky because you probably didn't have much to share. And it could be dangerous if those you allowed into your home weren't who they said they were. Even legitimate believers could take advantage of a fellow Christian's generosity. Now, while I certainly agree that sharing your home can be a great manifestation of hospitality, when I think of hospitality, I'm reminded that the Old Testament laws concerned themselves with external obedience to the law. You could technically be in obedience to the law with a bad attitude. I mean, as, as long as you didn't physically commit adultery, you were in the clear, even if you let your imagination run rampant. But all of that changed in the New Testament. Jesus was far more concerned about the state of your heart. In the New Testament, obedience starts at the heart level and then works its way out. So from Jesus' perspective, my thoughts about other women are just as important as my actions and maybe even more in some cases. Does it make sense? So with that principle, if we play that principle out with hospitality, what is the heart of hospitality? It is a heart orientation to invite others into a relationship of love. It is a heart orientation to make someone feel like they've come home. For example, we want every person who walks through our doors here at Dayspring to feel like they've come home. And when I ask people, why did you decide to stay at Dayspring? The most common answer I hear is that they felt like they had come home. That's hospitality. I don't have to physically make someone dinner in my home to be hospitable, which is a good thing. Because life is different than it was in the first century. They didn't have an outback or Applebee's. They actually cooked without a microwave. Uh, more than a few of us never even turn on our stove unless it's to heat up a can of chili. 
That's why Uber Eats, DoorDash, and the like have made such great headway in our economy. We don't cook like the first century church cooked. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not considered hospitality to offer people a chicken that's still raw or mushrooms. So for some of us, it is more hospitable to be hospitable at a restaurant where we can let professionals cook the meal. We carry the ability to be hospitable wherever, wherever we go. To be hospitable also means to look for needs that you can meet which can sometimes mean opening up your home to people. Pastor Michelle and Tony have done that many times with people who weren't flesh and blood family. But there are lots of ways to meet needs as well. You could pay a past due electric bill or a water bill or buy a tank of gas or some baby clothes for a single mom. Hospitality is a heart orientation to love like Jesus as we invite people into relationship. It is an an openness to emotional engagement, even with people we don't know yet. Without emotional engagement, it isn't truly hospitality in my book. It's not, it's not an in, inside-out kind of love. It's an outside-in without emotional engagement. To love like Jesus, to be hospitable like Jesus requires emotional engagement. And then in verses 10 and 11, Peter's final command Keep serving one another. In just a few words, Peter makes it clear that every one of us has been given what we call a spiritual gift. The Holy Spirit gives every believer at least one spiritual gift to be used for the kingdom purposes. We are to invest ourselves into the work of God in the church and in the world as we use our gifts. Now, he only gives us the gift of speaking and the gift of helps as examples, but there are many more spiritual gifts. You have one. Use it to serve one another in love. God reveals himself to the church and in the world uniquely through you as you use your gifts for his glory. No one else can give the same glimpse of God that you do when you serve. In summary, our hopeful expectation of the Lord's return should motivate us to use good judgment and sober-mindedness as we pray. We should stay fervent in love for one another, be hospitable to one another, and serve one another through the use of our spiritual gifts. These few verses answer the question, so what do we do while we're waiting for Jesus? We are sober-minded and purposeful. We fervently love, we are hospitable, and we serve one another. And with that, we move into the next section of 1 Peter, which will take us to the end of this letter. Not today, mind you. Don't worry, you'll get out of here in time for lunch. We'll finish, we'll finish it out next week. But just to remind us, in the first section, Peter reminded us of our living hope in Jesus. In the second section, Peter taught us how to live as hopeful ambassadors, even when faced with a life of suffering. Now in this third section, Peter transitions from an individual perspective of suffering to a special kind of suffering that would overtake the church. Uh, maybe think about it like this. Prior to March of 2020, when COVID shut down the world and life as we know it changed, you got a cold, got over it, passed it on to me. I got over it and I passed it on to Didi, who wasn't very happy with me. You were off the hook, not me. We all experienced suffering, but not necessarily at the same time. 
What COVID gave us was a collective suffering. We were all suffering, maybe different things. Some people lost the ability to go to work. Some people got COVID. Some people lost loved ones alone or shared, our shared suffering wasn't the same. But collectively, we were suffering. So at some point in the future, we will experience collective suffering in much the same way. The capital C church, which is made up of us individually, will experience suffering more broadly. In these last verses in this chapter, Peter gives instruction for navigating the tension between hope and suffering on this grander scale. Although truth is truth. So we can safely apply this truth to our individual suffering as well, maybe as training for when it comes in the future. But the context is larger than just you or me. So let's pick it up in uh, verse 12. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you were going through, as if something strange were happening to you. So instruction number one, for, for, use, for us as the capital C Church, expect trouble. Expect trouble. We are a bit insulated here in the U.S., but since Jesus returned to heaven, Christians have suffered for following Christ. The unbelieving world doesn't like it when someone lives differently than they do. By definition, the father of lies has built a world that depends on lies, pride, pleasure, and the lust for more. We, on the other hand, are building our lives on truth, humility, holiness, and the desire to glorify God. Throughout history, from Cain and Abel, the father of lies has been at war with people who would honor God. These two lifestyles are not compatible in any way. If it was true then, it's true now, and it will get worse in days to come. So don't be surprised. Expect trouble. Expect fiery trials. Instead, be very glad. For these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. If you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed for the glorious Spirit of God rests on you. So instead of thinking of these fiery trials as fires that destroy as the enemy intends them, think of them as fires that refine as God the Father redeems them. Fires that refine increase our fellowship with Christ. We are more like him when we suffer like he suffered. There is no easy way to become like Jesus. In order to become like Jesus, we have to walk the same kind of path as we become holy, completely different from the world around us, which means suffering is part of the journey. God is far more committed to your holiness than he is to your comfort. He redeems what the enemy intends for evil and makes it good. And because these fiery trials make us more like Jesus, because they increase our capacity to glorify God, we can rejoice in our suffering, which is instruction number two, rejoice in suffering. Instruction number three, examine your life. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. 
For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate waits for those who have never obeyed God's good news? And also, if the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to godless sinners? Now, in the refining fires of persecution and suffering, we often have more light to examine our lives Things become clearer as God removes the dross or junk and purifies us. Our mixed motives become unmixed motives. Our selfish, selfishness becomes selflessness. What is hidden becomes visible. The phrase there, if the righteous are barely saved, here in, in verse 18, means saved with difficulty, not barely saved. It refers to the quality of the spiritual journey. And it probably refers to Genesis chapter 19 when God, who was willing to rescue Lot from Sodom before it was destroyed, had to basically take an unwilling Lot by the hand and drag him out of the city. He was saved with difficulty. And then, last but not least, instruction number four, commit yourself to God. Verse 19, so if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, Keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you for he will never fail you. We are to entrust our lives or journey to the God who created us. He will give us what we need when we need it. He will never abandon us. He, he never leave us alone. He hems us in with his presence even when we can't feel it. His faithfulness will never fail. Okay, now we've, we've covered a lot today. And with all that we've learned, I want to encourage you to go back this week and look at the whole chapter again on your own. There are many more takeaways than I'm going to, that I'm going to close with. But with all that we, we've learned so far, one big sign of maturity on your spiritual journey is the way you navigate suffering. Any kind of suffering, financial, physical, emotional, relational, any kind of suffering, any valley experience, one big sign of maturity is whether you pray yourself out of it or pray your, your way through it. So many times our response to suffering is to ask God to rescue us from it, out of it, to remove us from the suffering. But if we've learned anything today, suffering of any kind is part of God's refining process in your life. And God is calling us to be just as committed to that process as he is. So are you. God never graduates you to the next level until you've passed the one you're on. So pray your way through the valley so you learn the lessons that he has for you. Sooner rather than later. That's the one sure way to get out of the valley faster. Let's pray. Father, we get to this, this place in Peter's letter to the churches in Asia Minor. And I am so thankful that I have a living hope in Jesus Christ. That, that you have called me, that you have called my brothers and sisters here in the room and watching online. You have called us to build our lives on the firm foundation, the rock that will never be overwhelmed. The rock on which the church is built, uh, of which the, uh, the gates of hell will never prevail. Father, you are calling us 
to live in a way that reveals your glory and your beauty to the world around us, to live as ambassadors uh, on your mission, not our own. And we pray that you would give us everything that we need to do that well. And as we face those speed bumps in our lives, uh, roadblocks, the, the suffering, the pain, uh, whatever, from whatever corner, whatever avenue, whatever valley we find ourselves in, may we be content in your presence as we pray our way through the lessons that you have for us, knowing that you are making us more like Jesus. May we be as committed to the journey as you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions, on your own or with others, will help the truth of God's Word find its place in your life. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. Faithful people like you make this ministry possible. People who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring, who have experienced God's work in and through their own lives and been changed in the process. If you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. We are simply excited to play a small part as God does His perfect work in you today. For those of you who would like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. And one more thing, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you connect with us. Thank you for rating us where that is appropriate. Even more, thank you for sharing our services with your friends and family. God uses you to plant seeds in other people's lives, so keep sowing. And if this service was a blessing to you, it'll probably be a blessing to someone else too. Until we meet again, I am praying that God's richest blessings would overflow in and through your life.